was the smiths with a track called i want the one i can't have from the album meat is murder i'm david eastall and this is the c86 show Hello and welcome once again to another epic slice of life as I spin the wheels of steel. And this week, my special guest is guitarist and rock legend, Fast Eddie Clark. So I caught up with him a few weeks ago to find out more about life in the fast lane. Because, let's face it, he was in one of the greatest rock bands of all time. Yes, Motorhead. So I'll be bringing you that interview throughout the show in about six easy-to-digest little segments. 
as well as the usual award-worthy playlist. So all we want you to do is sit back, relax, and obviously turn up your stereos. And being Mr. Predictable today, I thought we should start with that song, which is um, musical perfection. This is The Ace of Spades.
Yes, it is pop perfection there. That is, um, God, as if you need to know, uh, Black Sabbath and Paranoid. And before that, we had the unmistakable sound of Motorhead and Ace of Spades. And yes, this is David Eastall, and this is the C86 show on Future Radio. But um, today, um, I've slightly gone off-road from my usual indie pop soundtrack because I caught up with guitarist Fast Eddie Clark to find out more about life as a musician and life in Motorhead. So I'll be bringing that interview throughout the show as well as the usual sort of top quality playlist that you've come to expect. And um, also, I will tell you how to uh, contact me if you really need to or want to. It's always nice to hear your messages. But um, while we've got a lot to pack in and only, well, less than 50 minutes, I think we should play the next track. This is Bonner.
the unmistakable sound of Motorhead and the uh, track called Bomber. Yes, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. And as you can tell, it's a bit more rock and roll than normal, but it's still going to be quality all the way. And um, like I said, I caught up with Fast Eddie Clark from Motorhead recently. And because it's quite a bit of the interview and it's all fascinating stuff. Mm hmm. Yes, it is. Um, I thought I should play the first part now because um, otherwise we'll run out of time. Anyway, this is the uh, this is the bit of the interview where I ask him about his musical journey and how it all began. Well, well, I, well I started playing guitar when I was around, I think, about thirteen, and um, it was just something I happened to pick up of a, a friend of mine's brother, you know, an older brother, and uh, it was really the older brother's influence. Um, they were into the Yardbirds, right, and. Um, I tagged along when I was about 14, 15 to, to see them at the Crawdaddy. And uh, and I never looked back really musically. I thought, oh, I'd like to do that, you know. Yes. And uh, was it was it the guitar, you know, particularly the guitarist that was the... the well, it was Eric Clapton, of course, in those days. Yes. And, um, well, I think there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of, um, you know, peer pressure, you know. I could hear them talking about how great Eric was and all that. So I think I kind of latched on to that. Right. Because uh, I, I was literally, I, was, I think I was 14 going on 15 when I sneaked in. Yes. So, you know, I've often thought about it, but, um, but you know, of course, once I got into it, I mean, Eric became sort of like my, my guiding light. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, so I followed him with the Yardbirds. Of course, then he left the Yardbirds, and then he went to um, the Blues Breakers with John Mayle. And that was just wonderful, the Beano album. Yeah. And, and that really was a... A landmark for me. I had a little band then um, called The Bitter End, and we used to do all the the whole album, you know. Fantastic. And we used to play youth clubs. Yes. You know, local youth clubs, and um, so that was kind of the start, you know. And then of course things, you know. Then you leave school. I left school at fifteen and stuff. Well, I, I left school at fifteen. I, got, I just wanted to get out of school. It wasn't really my cup of tea. And um, I had this little amplifier that kept going wrong. And I really wanted to know how to fix it. So I went for this TV engineer job. And the guy said to me, he said, um, I said, well, why do you want this job? I said, well, I've got this amplifier and I really want to know how to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me the job. Excellent. So, so of course, but then once you're out of work, you know, things take over. And then you meet women and this, that and the other happens, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then so, so there was sort of a four, four. I mean, I was still sort of twi twiddling away, but not so much. And then I kind of relocated with it when I was I stopped working I started playing guitar again and then I stopped working and tried to go semi, uh, professional uh, I played with a band called Frankie Reed and the Casuals we were doing um, he was like an Elvis impersonator type we were doing Elvis songs and Chuck Berry songs and all that and doing the local pubs you know Yeah. Uh, that went on for I don't know maybe six months uh, and then that petered out but then of course I was in that sort of groove then yeah. I'm a guitar player you know <laughs> <laughs> so I starved for a while and sort of, you know, kicked my heels and one thing or another, did odd jobs and learn how to paint. And and then, of course, because I could do electrics, you know, I, I, I started to do electrician work and stuff like anything I could lay my hands on, really. Yeah, yeah. So then, of course, I spent a few years doing that. And then, of course, I joined Curtis Knight, which was a, a bit of a a bit of a coup, really. Because once you're in a little band, you, you learn so much, you know, from, sure. from the old guys, you know, so... Well, we did a couple of sessions, one at Olympic and one at CBS, did an album. Uh, of course, I, I learned a lot from that. Yeah. But that petered out as well. Uh, then I did a sort of a solo thing I was trying to put together. 
and then that petered out. <laughs> and then, of course, I, I met Lemmy and Phil. Yes, what happens next? I hear you cry. Anyway, you'll find out once we've had a bit more music. This is Motorhead and Damage Case. There you go, another Motorhead track. That's Damage Case, and that was from their 1979 album Overkill, produced by the one and only Jimmy Miller, who also did quite a bit of stuff with the Rolling Stones. Hello, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show, and if you ever want to contact me, and we do love your messages, but uh, make sure your little fingers are clean, um, you can via email or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show, and you'll find me there lurking in the shadows. But anyway, the second part of my interview with Fast Eddie Clark, where I talk about the meeting of the band. Well, I'd met Phil. I was I was actually doing a job on a houseboat. I was I was foreman, uh, and this was the money I was using to to fund my solo album. And actually, some uh, one of the guys brought Phil along and said, "Can you give him a job?" So I said, "Yeah, sure." He seemed like a nice bloke. I chatted to him and that, and then I got to know him really well while we were working together. And then he disappeared. And then he called me up and said, "You know, I'm in this band Motorhead now. Uh, would you come and play second guitar?" <laughs> 
And of course, and that's and so I said, yeah. Then of course I ran into Lemmy, and we put a, an audition together. And the other guitarist wasn't too keen, right? And so that left us as, as a three-piece. And so, so that was kind of how, how Phil, that I met Phil and Lemmy, you know. That was quite interesting because, because kind of a couple of months ago, I did an interview with Dave, dear old Dave Brock from Hawkwind. Oh yeah, who was all part of that sort of free festival was, yeah. and squat period, which is obviously Lemmy was in as well. So during that mid seventies period, I mean, things were looking kind of grim in this country, wasn't it as well? It was grim, very grim. I mean, Lemmy was in a squat. Phil was in a squat. I was in a, I was in a shared flat. We were like, I'd, I'd met some people who had a, a mansion flat on cheap rent. Yeah. And I was just renting a room for a five or a week. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but back then it was quite a find, you know. Yeah, of course. So, um, but, um, yeah, it was very, very grim, but there was absolutely no money about. No. Uh, I remember scraping money together just to pay the five and then having rehearsals, scraping the money together was difficult. Uh, I mean, I remember one time remote, we were, when we were first starting, we were doing some gigs up north. And we couldn't get home because we didn't have any petrol money. So the tour manager had a brother who, who was a member of the AA. So he phoned his brother and got the AA number. And what we did was we, dis we, we let all the hydraulic fluid out, the brakes. And if you do that, the AA, when they come along and say, oh, no, it's the brakes, we can't do any roadside. <laughs> we have to put you on a trailer and take you back to London. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how much how much money there wasn't about, you know what I mean? So when you started getting the sound together, I mean, because I grew up, my brother was a bit older than me, about seven years, and um, so he was into sort of that prog rock period and also the early sort of, I suppose, heavy metal, the Deep Purple and the Black Sabbath. I mean, when you started making the sort of early sound of uh, Motorhead, did it come together quite easily or quite quickly? Well, I mean, it was just throwing three people together and we played. Um, but I have to say, in the beginning... Um, it didn't sound that wonderful um, because it was a, you know, there's a period, I think with most bands, especially if you're in something unique, like Lemmy's bass playing was so different from anything else. Yeah. It wasn't really what you call bass playing as we know it. It's um, it's like rhythm guitar through a bass guitar. Yeah. And But he was, he, he had a guitar sound on his bass, which made, so there was no real bass in the band apart from Phil's bass drum. So it took a while before we actually, probably 12 months or so, even after the, we recorded the first album, before we actually got to grips with actually knowing, getting it so that it actually started to sound right, you know? Yeah. It sounded a bit odd at first, even though we didn't care because we were just playing and making a noise and loving it, you know? Yeah. And of course we'd have a bit of speed, you know, and we'd kick off, you know, and... Yeah, you know, speed was very handy in them days because then you didn't have to worry about food, you know. Absolutely. That was a per perfect thing, actually. <laughs> and, did, and did you feel like a gang quite quickly? Oh, yeah, very quickly. It was us against the rest, you know. Right. Uh, but I think that was the mentality back then. I mean, obviously, with all the other punk bands, we were all very friendly and we all got on great. Yes. But I think the whole movement felt it was us against, you know, them, if you know what I mean, because the business didn't want us. Um, establishment certainly didn't want us, you know what I mean? And the police were always stopping us and searching us, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So really, we were on the other side of the tracks then, which was quite nice because it gives you a, a clear identity and a clear goal of where you're going. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas now, of course, there isn't that line anymore. Everything's sort of become one. Yeah. And, and you know, it was nice being like an outlaw. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. whereas now you can't really be an outlaw. 
So true. Yes, that's my second part of the interview with uh, Fast Eddie Clark from Motorhead, and I still have lots more of that. But as you might have just meant, um, heard, if you were paying attention in that interview, he mentioned the punk bands, and one of the bands that um, used to hang out a lot with Motorhead and Lemmy especially was The Damned, and so I thought we should play Love Song. Ladies and gentlemen, how do? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. And yes, I was prepared for that immediate abrupt ending. Anyway, that was a damn, the track called Love Song. And that was from their 1979 album, Machine Gun Etiquette. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. And as you can tell, this is a bit of a uh, rock and roll fest because I caught up with Motorhead guitarist um, Fast Eddie Clark. And this is uh, the, as I'm trundling through the interview here, this is the third part where I talk about his or their famous uh, John Peel session. It was so famous. Yes, we were chuffed. I mean, and I don't even know how that came about, to be honest. I mean, we were just really excited, yeah. um, you know, to go down. I think we went down to Del- Del- Derwent Road, was it, the studios down there? Right. Um, we did the session. Then, of course, Lemmy put the bloody thing, blew the speakers up. <laughs> and we thought, oh, well, they're never going to have us back again. I don't think they did. <laughs> well, I think you did. I think you did BBC concerts, but the John Peel session you did because you did three songs. You did the classic Louis Louis, didn't you? I think we did. I think we did. I'll be your sister and and tear you down. Tear you down because we were just starting to write our own stuff then. So we were just coming into. A, I thought there were four songs actually. Oh, you might be right, but I, I just remember those. Yeah, I think there was four because I think that was the session. I can't remember what the fourth one was. 
But you're right, we probably did Louis Louis or even White Line Fever. But then yeah. I remember we did I'll Be Your Sister, which was off the Overkill album. And, and we did Tear You Down. I might have done Too Late, Too Late. Right. Um, but they were, they were the, that was the new stuff we were starting to write. And we were finally starting to write some good tunes, you know. Yeah. And they were coming, they started to come thick and fast after that. Well, you did, yes, because your next album's Overkill, which it starts with the most epic song, one of the most epic songs Motor have ever done, which was, which was the uh, obviously the title track as well. Which just because you think it's going to stop, don't you? And then it doesn't. Yeah, well, that was that was kind of nice. <laughs> Overkill was well, Phil had just got a new drum kit because we'd actually got a few quid. Somebody put some money up to make the album and, and bought some equipment, so Phil got a double drum kit. So we're sitting in the rehearsal room, and Phil goes. It's not playing the double drum kit, the 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 overkill drum beat. He says, "Why can't we do a song like this?" You know. Yeah. And he's playing the double bass drum. So me and let me look at each other. We go in E, and we went all right. So we just started playing in E. And then as we were just thrashing around, we formed it into overkill. Fantastic. And um, but the nice thing about the ending was because. We were rocking so much, and it was it, in those days. It was one of the first double bass drum tracks. Nobody had actually really collared double bass drums at that time in that way. Yeah. Actually, basing a whole song on the double bass drum, and so it was quite unique. So when we got to the end, of course, we'd been cooking along, and of course, we were steaming, and it was fantastic. So we did this thing. Oh man, it's so fantastic! Let's start again. <laughs> Uh, and I remember the manager saying, we did it, I think we did it three times, and then, it, when you say three times, it was two two restarts. Yeah. And um, the manager said, well, you can't do that. He said, you can't do that. I said, why not? I said, we're motorhead, we can do anything. <laughs> you know, which was true. Excellent, yes. So we we actually had a free reign. I know. It illustrates that, you know, being motorhead had its pluses in as much as you could do anything you like, really. Yeah. And Except it, play acoustic guitar and sing love songs. Yeah, that never goes. But but the interesting thing is the songwriting in that very short period of time really changed, didn't it? Because because you had about four or five songs which you know are, are still the classics like Overkill, Stay Clean, Damage Damage Case, and all yeah, Damage System. Case. So it, it you know it was it was amazing how quickly the band sort of formed and got that sort of songwriting. Sorted. Yeah, we kind of like that's what I was saying early on. You know, when I said it took us a while before we found playing together and getting it organised. It took that sort of initial year or so. And then we started to find find a sort of a formula, if you like, that made the band sound good. And, of course, with that came the songwriting. Yeah. And even so, when we'd done Overkill, we we finished Overkill in, um, I mean, it was just after Christmas, 78. And uh, we did the tours and all that, did Europe and did we never, didn't do America at that time. And, of course, by by the end of the summer, the the record company wanted another album. So we looked at each other and said, yeah, yeah, we'll do another one. <laughs> of course, we, we just went in. It was fantastic because we just went into the, into the rehearsal room and we just rolled off all these songs. We were so hot at that moment, you know, from the yeah. overkill. The bomber just followed on. Yes. And, we, and within, I think, within four or five weeks, we had another album. I know. The creative splurge of Motorhead at that period was amazing. And um, as you can tell, we're very excited and slightly hyperventilating here because that is Fast Eddie Clark guitarist with Motorhead during their early, and some people say golden years. Anyway, still got quite a bit more of that interview, so I'll play one more track and then we'll get back to it. This is We Are The Road Crew. <laughs> Thank you. 
on their album Ace of Spades and yes Motorhead now my fourth part of the interview with Fast Eddie Clark where we talk or I mention about the I suppose the length or the longevity of the the band in terms of their creative peak because I sort of realise that most bands have about five years where they do the uh, one classic album possibly two and then it all goes terribly wrong but uh, with Motorhead like with a few bands they did a, um, a selection of albums during that early years which were all amazing so um, that's the that's the gist of it well, yeah, I see it's two or three, two or three albums. Yeah, it's what I see. It's two or three albums is normally, you know. I mean, if you take Overkill, Bomber, and Ace of Spades, by the time we got to Ace of Spades, it wasn't quite that easy. It was still rolling out, but it wasn't as easy as it was, say, on Bomber. Yeah, and there was a bit more thought went into it, and the producer came in a little bit more, Vic Mail, and we did some some adjustments and some writing in the studio some adjusting writing you know yeah uh, which was a new thing for us because what we used to do was we used to rehearse it till we were till we could play it back was in the studio so we just went in the rehearsal room so we just went in the studio and put it down because we didn't really like being in the studio that much you know yes. plus it cost a lot of money you know 
and we didn't have any. <laughs> <laughs> well, so our manager told us. Yes. That's another one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, we found out later that we did have some money, but, you know, <laughs> we thought we didn't. So, you know, which was kind of good in a way. It kept us, you know, kept us lean and mean, you know. Yes. Because obviously the, the, the album that you produced, Iron Fist, that, I mean, does have some fantastic songs on it, but was that a bit of a... Is, was that when things started getting a bit more tricky? That was difficult. Yeah, that was difficult. Uh, as I say, um, Ace of Spades went quite smoothly. There was some adjustments. We'd been to America with Ozzy, we came back, and the record company were bouncing about ordering another album. They were forcing us to do another album. At this time, Phil had fallen out with Vic Mayo, the producer of Ace of Spades, and refused to work with him anymore, even though we'd done half a dozen tracks with Vic for the new album. Yeah. So Phil and him had a very big round. Phil said, I'm not working with him anymore. So, um, so then, of course, we, everything stopped, uh, and then we started to look for a producer. Well, it wasn't easy finding the producers because producers wanted a lot of money. Some wanted ten thousand, some wanted twenty thousand. Well, when you're a band that hasn't got any money, you say, "What do you mean you want twenty grand? Fuck off!" You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, you just can't do that. Yes. So, you know, that's one of the things I always say about the management. They shot themselves in the foot in a way because you know keeping us poor meant that you know when somebody said, "Oh, we want ten grand," you say, "Oh, go away!" You know, get a life. Yeah. So, of course, I'd just done the Tank album. Um who were managed by the same management, and I produced that. It took me a month in January, just over Christmas in January, and it sounded well. So Phil said, well, why don't you do it? I said, look, man, I can't possibly do the album and play on it. But Doug thought, the manager thought this was a great idea because, of course, it wouldn't cost any money if I do it. Yeah. Uh, and the record company were just desperate to get the album started. So I, and Lemmy was never happy with that, and I didn't really realise how unhappy he was with that. Uh, this is one of the things, I mean, I can't obviously talk to him about it anymore, but mm. um, looking back on it, I sensed that, you know, there was there was a bit of unrest there. Yeah. And um, so the album, we wrote the songs and all that, and some of them were good, but some of them were a little throwaway. And, and the attitude in the recording sessions was difficult. You know, Phil came in and done his drums, then he disappeared. Um, Lemmy came in and then Lemmy disappeared and I had to get Lemmy to come and do vocals or a bass overdub. He wasn't that interested. Nobody was really interested, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so cracks were starting to appear. And of course it stressed everybody out. Um, uh, and then of course we did the, um, then the tour followed. Um, you know, the record company, after all this whippiness to get it finished, we booked the tour and we're ready to go on the road and... We're on the road and the album's not in the shops. So, I mean, I mean, you couldn't make it up really. The record company going on and on about doing the record. And then they'd send us out on the road without the record. So we couldn't do the new record. <laughs> but then Phil said he'd leave the band if we didn't do the new record on the third show in Glasgow. Right. And so Phil and Lemmy and I said, well, look, Phil, OK, if you feel that strongly about it, what we'll do is we'll, we'll do half a dozen so uh, tunes at the sound check tomorrow. And we'll put them in the set. So that appeased Phil. But of course, we went out, then we were going out doing six songs that the fans had never heard. Yeah. So of course, they're standing there wondering what we're doing. <laughs> uh, and so, so for the first time, we were, we, were at, we were doing shows and they weren't really coming alive until the encore yeah. when, when we did all the old favourites. So 
So, yeah, things started to get stressed in. Yes. You know, because when your gigs stop not going well, you start stressing out, you know? Yes, I would imagine. It's interesting because it kind of reminds me slightly of the band from the from the 80s who sort of dominated for five years and then it all went wrong with the Smiths. They they never managed to get their management sorted out and they never managed to get some of the... I suppose it's the admin and the sort of the legality, the things dragged on but were unspoken until it all sort of exploded and suddenly, you know... A, Interviews appeared in the paper and everyone said, oh, bollocks, I'm going then. And that was the end of the band. Whereas, you know, you, you also sort of had a very similar experience with that. Well, it just, it does start, it can implode. You're, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's important that you have good management and good record company at that period. Yes. But we didn't. I know. Uh, they weren't managing us properly and the record company weren't behaving properly. And of course, you know, we were quite famous by then. And of course, you know when you you know when you've got haven't got a pot of pissing, you don't care, you know, you don't think about whether you like someone or not. You just get on with it. Yeah, absolutely. But but when you you know when you're famous and all this, you know, what I mean, and you've got a few quid in your pocket and you're thinking, oh yeah, of course, suddenly things start to bother you. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I don't like him like that. You know what I mean? And all that. That's, I mean, one of the other problems that a lot of bands often have is is sort of like obviously the consumption of alcohol and drugs. Was that also something that was that a factor in Motorhead at all? Or did well, that... of course, yeah. I mean, a big factor. <laughs> <laughs> we drank like fish and, you know, took a lot of speed, smoked a lot of dope, you know. Right. And, you know, and, you know, and obviously we had fallings out, you know. Yeah. Under the in, especially Phil and I. Particularly, we had fallings out, but of course, Lemmy would get dragged into it as well. But then Je Lemmy was kind of, you know, he wasn't a saint by any means, Lemmy, because he never wanted to rehearse or anything. So there were always these arguments about things. Right. You know, we'd be going to, to an interview or something, and he'd be saying, oh, I don't want to do this, man. I want to go to the pub. And, you know, we said, no, man, we've got to do it, you know, and then there'd be a fucking argument, you know. <laughs> and then we'd all have a few beers, and it'd get even worse, you know. <laughs> and we'd been up all night, or maybe Lemmy might have been up three or four nights, which upset me and Phil. Yes. Because we'd be going on stage, and Lemmy would be like not fully on it, you know. Absolutely, yeah. So that would annoy us, so we'd have a row about that. You know, so there's all these rows started happening. Oh dear, yes, you can tell that uh, life was getting a bit tricky. Anyway, look, the, the clock is ticking down, I've still got a few more parts of this interview. This is the next part where I talk about the, um, the dynamic of the band, and as you can tell, things are getting a bit tricky. This is with Fast Eddie Clark. Well, I suppose it could have been. I mean, you know, I wouldn't have had it any other way. No. But um, I suppose it could have been difficult, but if one person had been in charge, I think our personalities were so strong yes. that we couldn't have been in a situation like that. Because I can see that, you know, because you started it together, you'd all sort of feel like a third of the, the band. Basically. Absolutely. It, was, it, it wouldn't have worked any other way. Yes. And not, neither, none of us could have worked for someone else in charge, you know. No. no. But it was working well for a long time. It was just... As I say, the management, the record company, they took their eye off the ball, really. Yes. And when we'd been to America, America takes a lot out of a band. You know, I had this with my following band, Fastway. You go to America and you play all these shows, but you play the same songs every night. 40 minutes, you know. Yeah. And we didn't go down well in America with Ozzy. You know, we supported Ozzy Osbourne. And we didn't go down well. In some states we did, you know, in like LA, New York, Chicago, Seattle. In places like Nebraska and stuff like that, the people just didn't know what we were doing. They were looking at us like we were aliens, you know, people were walking out and all that. 
And so, of course, that doesn't do your confidence any good. No. And you must have been a bit confused because obviously there was the sort of the L.A. rock scene. So you must have felt like, hey, how come you're not sort of paying attention to us in the same way that you, with all the Well, other... of course, yeah, while we were in America that time, of course, our, our live album went straight to number one. Yeah. So, of course, there's this sort of like weird thing going on where you're playing in America and you're not really known anywhere. And yet you've got an album back home that's number one. I know. And you're in America and you can't get all the free drinks. <laughs> <laughs> so what a bummer, you know, you're thinking we shouldn't be here. Absolutely. And obviously then, you know, things came to a head when you were doing, when you were doing your sort of the cover of Stand By Your Man, wasn't it? That was the, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, really, I think, for all of us. Um, obviously things, I, I didn't notice that things were that bad, to be honest, because I never saw myself not being in Motorhead. Yeah, I, I thought I was going to die in Motorhead, you know. Yeah. Um, but obviously it got to a stage, and then, of course, we're doing this, you know, because we'd done the girls' school thing. The management said, oh, wouldn't it be a great idea to do something with the plasmatics? Well, Lemmy always liked working with, with other women rock stars, you know. So he loved the idea. So they said, well, look, well, Eddie, you produce it, because I, you know... And then Phil plays the drums, Lemmy plays the bass, we'll use their guitarist and... I think they're bass player actually. Yeah. And um, and of course, Lemmy and Wendy would do a duet, you know. Which, when we'd went to New York and did rehearsals, you know, it was I thought it was rubbish because they were trying to play it as it was played in the country style, which is about forty-seven chords. You know, it's a completely different song. You know, I thought we should have done like a a punk version. Yeah. You know, like a rock version with just straight chords, simplified. But they wanted to do all the da 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 da, you know, those are all different chords. And I'm thinking, well, why don't? But Lemmy said, no, man, we're doing it this way, and that's it. Fuck off. <laughs> so I said, all right. Then. So of course I, was, I still never got it that something was wrong. So anyway, we go to Toronto to to do it. My engineer friend flies in, the guy that done Iron Fist with me and Tank. Um, and um, we started the sessions, and they were they were pretty good. We laid down the tracks; everything was fantastic, and the tracks were sounding very, very good. Of course, when it came to get Wendy to sing, she went out to sing, and it wasn't sounding right. So I figured that it was in the wrong key. So I said to her, "I said, what key do you like?" She said, "Oh, I like to say it was A." And I said, "Oh, we've done it in C." So I went back to the to Lemmy, and I said, "Look, I think we should redo the tracks in the key that suits Wendy's voice." So we all agreed, and then we come back the next day, laid the backing tracks down again in the key that Wendy liked. And we said, okay, Wendy, can you do the vocals, you know? Well, she went out and did the vocals, and she started the vocals, and it just didn't sound right to me. I just wasn't happy with it. It was sounding a bit not motorhead, you know, very not motorhead. So I sort of, I then sleeked off. I said, well, you know, I'm going to have something to eat, and we'll sort it out later, you know? So, of course, I went to the fucking nearest off-license, bought a bottle of... Canadian club and went back to the hotel and got drunk, which made Lemmy really furious, you know. Yeah. Um, and Phil got really furious, so we had a big argument about that. And I said, "Look, I don't think we should be doing this. It sounds, it doesn't sound like motorhead. We're going to damage ourselves." And I was coming from the place that Iron Fist had already damaged us. You know, the album didn't go down as well as the earlier ones. The tour wasn't as successful as the earlier ones because of all the trouble I told you about. Yeah. I said, "We need something to." put us back in you know something easy i don't think we need to push the fans to this limit you know yes absolutely so i said look let me why don't we do an r&b thing going back to the r birds because lemmy was a big fan 
why don't we do Hoochie Coochie Man, say Too Much Monkey Business, a Chuck Berry song, and put out a blues EP while we're in America, you know, to keep mm. the English fans happy. No, man, we're putting this out, and we'll put on the cover, we'll put, this has got nothing to do with Eddie Clark. Of course, that made me really upset, because then I said, but it's my band, man, as well. It's our band, you can't say that. Yeah. I care about the band, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think we're damaging the band. So, of course, I said, well, if you carry on with this, I said, I'll, I'll have to fucking leave. What else can I do, you know? They said, well, you have to fucking leave then, won't you? So I did. I said, all right, then I'll fucking leave then. <laughs> well, of course, you know, one thing led to another, and then we did the gig in Toronto. You know, nothing more was said. We had a gig in Toronto the following day. We drove down to New York. Well, the drive down to New York was very difficult. We had a big fucking row because they were wearing Wendy O. Williams T-shirts and playing Wendy O. Williams songs on the fucking... On the, on the sound system, which pissed me off. And the manager was there, and he could see I was getting really angry. So in the end, I said, oh, fuck it, and that really is it. I've had enough. So anyway, so big rails ensued and all that, so we agreed to do the last show. And uh, after the last show, I went in the dressing room, because they, they insisted I had a separate dressing room, so I went into their dressing room and said, look, guys, why don't we carry on? And they said, no, man, fuck off. And little did I know that Brian Robertson was already on a plane coming over to America. Yes. So, you know, you think, well, these guys have really betrayed me here. But at the time, I was just dumbfounded. Yes. So I, I, what could I do? I could do nothing else. Uh, I mean, I had to come back to England and with nothing. They kept all my guitars, all my equipment. You know, I had nothing. Oh, rock and roll, it's a, um, it's a heavy number. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 Show, trying to sort of um, keep some light and happiness going here. But um, this, is with, uh, this, this week's show is a special bit of a motorhead theme because I caught up with Fast Eddie Clark. And this is the sixth part of the um, interview that I did where he talks about, um, Eddie talks about leaving the band and the admin that goes on about having a divorce. Oh, yeah, well, that's all. Yeah, but the management had all that tied up. So, of course, that was very difficult. Um, it took me a while to sort that out. Not that long, because I met Pete Way and we started working together. And, of course, there was great interest in my new project. And um, so, you know, I soon found a, an accountant to take care of me. I found new management. And, of course, then they went in and, and sorted all that out. Uh, the record company, of course, let me go immediately. Right. Which was their mistake. Jerry Bond said to me later, he said, I'd have never let you go if I'd known you were going to put a band together like Fastway. Yes. Because I put a great band together. that was really quite big in America. But um, they all had this wrong idea in their head. You know, I don't know what they what was going on in their heads, really, because Doug, I, I, I speak to Doug Smith, the old manager, but he can't seem to answer my questions. I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, to get rid of me was such a major mistake, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so, you know, it still doesn't make any sense to me, but that was the end of the band, you know. Yeah. That's, and, I of course, mean, they got Brian Robertson, but, of course, they never recovered. No, and they they seemed to sort of have an issue with his... Was it his fashion sense they didn't like or something? Well, there was that, and, of course, he did drink a lot, and him and Phil were doing the wrong drugs as well, from what I gather. Yes. Um, uh, and he did... He was a... He was a, a raging alcoholic and I think he found life in Motorhead more difficult than he could possibly ever imagined it wasn't an easy life no Lemmy was very difficult and hard to work with especially as a guitar player 
you know, you had to sacrifice a lot of what you normally would take as norm. You would sacrifice it to to play with Lemmy, you know, because you had no bass. Yeah. So you had to, your playing had to fit around not having a bass player, having this sort of rhythm guitar thing. So I'd got used to it and we'd worked it out. Yeah. Like I said, but for Robbo, he'd have come in from Finn Lizzy with a big fat bass and a nice fat rhythm guitar, you know. Yeah. To actually having nothing underneath him like that at all. I think it probably freaked him out. <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I could imagine that was a bit of a tricky one. And actually, the, the, I mean, him and Wurzel were both quite damaged by the end of Motorhead, weren't they, really? Wurzel, well, Wurzel was, I think Wurzel was, I don't, I mean, I knew Wurzel. Well, of course, then, well, then Robbo left and Phil left. They left together. Yeah. Because they were bosom buddies, you know. Yep. And, um, and I think they had the same taste in drugs and that sort of thing. I mean, one thing as a fan that one has is, is, you know, often people want reunions. Obviously, that never is going to happen now. But the one thing that I suppose I, I never wanted the reunions with bands that I particularly like after they broke up. But there was part of me, and it might sound a bit strange, but the, the idea that actually the members of the band were OK with each other. You know, it's, it's on that level that you think, I just, I hope they kind Oh, we were fine. We, we were absolutely fine. I mean, Lemmy and I got, were, were friendly. Lemmy never really, I don't think Lemmy quite, Grasp what was going on. He, I think he kind of thought it might be a good idea, but I think when he started to think about it, I think he thought it wasn't such a good idea. Because even in the hotel, he was he was at least civil to me. Phil wouldn't speak to me in the hotel. Right. It was Phil who was most hostile. Phil was the one because of course he wanted Brian Robinson in the band because he was a massive Finn Lizzy fan. Right. And um, he'd often said to me, you know, he wasn't happy with some of my guitar licks. I know that, but you know, but but you know. So, so what happened was Phil. I never heard from Phil really. For Lemmy and I, I was at the Reading Rock Festival that year, and Lemmy come over and started talking to me. And then I went on stage with Twisted Sister to do a number, and who should sneak on the back, Lemmy? <laughs> <laughs> so you know we were fine. Phil wasn't quite so easy. I didn't see Phil for I don't know maybe eighteen months. Until he left the band, until he left Motorhead, and he came turned up on my up my door on my doorstep in London, and said, "Hi, man, how are you doing?" I said, "Oh, Phil, come in." He came in, and we had a few drinks, and he said, "Yeah, man, it was all a bit much." Well, he said, yeah, "Sorry about all that, you know." So it was kind of by way of apology, you know. Yeah. Uh, so we were fine after that. We were jolly good friends. All three of us were jolly good friends after that. Yeah. And there you go. That's um, almost the end of my interview with Fast Eddie Clark. There is just one bit which I'd like to play because he just talks about writing and uh, recording Ace of Spades because I always thought it was one of those songs which you could put down as musical perfection. And this is Eddie's um, take on it. I hope you get as lucky as I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was very ace. No, that's not it at all. Wait a minute. Um, and then, yes, and that was that. And now my last little bit of the interview where I ask Eddie what he would say to his 18-year-old self starting out in music. I hope you get as lucky as I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was very ace of spades. I couldn't have dreamed of having an ace of spades. Yeah. I mean, OK, I didn't make too much money out of the business, but I've done OK. I'm not poor, you know. But to be honest, uh, I trade all that wealth to have an ace of spades. Because when you think about it, when, when all the dust has settled, you know, ace of spades will still be there. It will be there. And there's not a lot of bands, and I don't say this horribly, I mean, there's not a lot of bands can say that. No. Where you have a classic track, 
you know, so I'm, I think we're really blessed to have that classic track, you know. It is true. It is true. You know, yes. and you can't, it's not something you can plan. It's something that just happens by chance. You know, it's the right place, right time sort of thing. It's all down to luck and chance, you know. So true. And that is the last part of my interview with Fast Teddy Clark, um, one time guitarist with the famous and the most amazing band of all time, Motorhead. So a big thank you for giving me the time for that. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show, and this is the end of the show. And this, I'll leave you with Overkill. Have a great week. Oh, 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 oh,